Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. The mask mandate has been lifted on public transportation. You know, this is a federal mandate that came down, and so there is no requirement for anybody to wear a mask. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. This is KPBS Midday Edition. The replacement for Mission Bay Drive Bridge is soon to open. The previous bridge was more functional. It looked like a concrete structure. And this has some elegance and some curves and some arc to it. Escondido's downtown is getting a makeover and a preview of the Turner Classic Movies Film Festival. That's ahead on Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org. The wait is nearly over for commuters on West Mission Bay Drive. 25 years after the present Mission Bay Drive bridge was described as functionally deficient and obsolete, the replacement bridge is just months away from completion. And the consensus is it's a beauty, an elegant new welcome mat for Mission Beach. Joining me is San Diego Union Tribune reporter David Garrick. And David, welcome. Thanks for having me. Can you give us an idea of what the new bridge looks like? It's got some curves to it, and it's got some, I guess you'd call them, not decorations, but I think that when people started to use the word elegant, I knew what they were talking about. Uh, You know, the previous bridge was more functional. It looked like a concrete structure, and this has some elegance and some curves and some arc to it. It's not quite as arced, obviously, as the Coronado Bridge, but it does have some of that kind of arc on a smaller degree. These people were smart, and they built it on the western edge. Um, which I think allows the views that these people have to be you know, pretty spectacular, I think, would not be a, an overstated word to use. It's like a 12-foot wide shared area for bikes and pedestrians, but there's also benches for people to sit and, and enjoy the view and see this sort of panorama over there, which is really maybe San Diego's most iconic area where you know the beaches come together with the ocean and the San Diego River. And how many vehicle lanes does this new bridge have? There's three heading north and three heading south, and the previous bridge was uh, two each direction. So it's going from four to six. And this is the area that connects the Midway area to the beaches, I-8, SeaWorld, that whole section, right? Correct. And for folks who don't know, the Midway area is basically the sports arena area, one of the most sort of congested areas in San Diego. So uh, this is sort of a big uh, connection point. And how bad has the commute been on the old bridge? 
Uh, it depends on the time of day, but in the summer and especially on summer weekends and holidays, it's been particularly bad, like really, really long lines of brake lights. Uh, and even in the regular parts of the year, the evening commute hours can be really difficult. You know, in your report, you mentioned this project has been in the works for 25 years. Why so long? Yeah, the government works slowly. Uh, I guess after it was declared structurally deficient, there was a lot of questions about should we renovate it? Should we replace it? Uh, Sandag, the county's regional planning agency, at one point was considering building a bus rapid transit station there. That was then abandoned. Um, And the city officials, when they were sort of defending themselves for taking so long, they said that a project like this really doesn't reach the full-blown aggressive planning stage until there's money in place. And there really wasn't any money in place. So 25 years ago, they knew that it was deficient, but they didn't know where they would get the money to fix it or how to fix it. Once they had the money, They figured out how to fix it, and here we are now. And how much has the bridge cost? The original price tag was $146 million, and it's staying within its contingency. So unless something unusual happens between now and October when it's scheduled to be done, it should be in the neighborhood of just under $150 million. And the money is coming from a federal grant for bridges. That's over $100 million of it. And then the city is going to have to make up the difference. But they're able to use money from Transnet, the county's half-cent sales tax surcharge, and then some other state money they get from gas taxes. So it's not really coming from money that the city would spend on parks and libraries and firefighters. So this project has sort of been in the works for 25 years, but how long has the actual construction been taking place? It began in July of 2018, so it looks like it'll end up about a four-year, a little over four-year project, which the original plan was to open, I believe, in the end of 2021. So it's only about a year late, which as a reporter, I can tell you every project is at least a year late. So this is actually, I would argue, early. So yeah, about four years. Have there been environmental impact delays? Is that one of the things that slowed it down? Yeah, because they're going to be destroying some habitat in the San Diego River and on the sides of the banks where they're building this, you know, they had to do mitigation work, which means you sort of create habitat somewhere else. They chose to do that near I-5 and then near Dog Beach. And uh, they had to haggle with the state and federal wildlife agencies about how they would handle the mitigation and other details. And that was a a complex process that appears to have ended up with a, a good result that everyone's pleased with. Okay, so traffic is congested on the old West Mission Bay Drive bridge. How has it been handled while this construction has been underway for four years? Yeah, from my perspective, it's been remarkably clever. In order to keep at least one lane of traffic going in each direction during the entire time they had the construction, except for maybe, you know, a few nights or or periods like that where they would shut down. Uh, But during the commute hours, they were able to keep at least one lane open in each direction by doing this very incrementally. They built the first three-lane bridge. There's two three-lane sections, right? They built the first three-lane bridge. Once they completed that, they eliminated one lane of traffic on the old bridge and combined the two. And then when they started to build the second one and got that partly open, right, then they deleted another lane. So it was a very slow, incremental, methodical process, uh, and it appears to have had uh, pretty strong results. Now, the new bridge is being praised as elegant, a big visual improvement, but there are some doubts that it will actually improve traffic in the area. Why is that? I think there's concerns that while it solves the problem of getting people from the sports arena area across the river into Mission Beach, there are two bridges north of it. The Ingram Street Bridge, which goes into Crown Point and Pacific Beach, and then another West Mission Bay Drive Bridge that gets you to the roller coaster and the heart of Mission Beach. Those are going to remain four-lane bridges. So even though you're going to have more traffic coming in, 
a lot of people are worried there may be bottlenecks in the middle of the area. So have you really solved the problem? But I think even the, the most pessimistic person will agree that on a summer weekend, getting out of Mission Beach into the sports arena area and onto I-8 will be definitely better. But the, the idea is there's, there still could be bottlenecks uh, north of this area. And when is the new bridge scheduled to be open? They said very firmly October. You know, you always doubt as a reporter that maybe there'll be another delay. But they were saying very, very firmly, both the construction team and the city, that this will open in October. Okay, then. I've been speaking with San Diego Union-Tribune reporter David Garrick. David, thank you. Thanks for having me. Traveling in and around the country looks a lot different today than it did yesterday. Following a Florida federal judge's ruling striking down the federal transportation mask mandate, airlines, including Southwest, American, Delta, United, and others, are making masking optional on domestic flights. The TSA has also announced it will no longer enforce the mandate, at least for the time being. Here's San Diego International Airport spokesperson Sabrina Lo Piccolo. The mask mandate has been lifted, so there is no mask mandate, which means that we are not enforcing anybody and will not require anybody to wear a mask while inside the airport. In addition to the airport and airlines, Amtrak, Uber, and others have announced they will no longer be enforcing mask mandates either. Here to help us understand the changes from a medical and legal perspective is Rebecca Fielding Miller, an epidemiologist and UC San Diego professor, along with Joanna Sachs, a law professor with California Western School of Law. Welcome to you both. It's great to be here. Thank you for having us. Hello. Joanna, Judge Mizell says the CDC violated the rules of the Administrative Procedure Act. Explain what's going on here. There's two main legal issues that are going on in the opinion. One is that uh, the CDC, which we've all become very familiar with over the past couple of years, is what, what we call an administrative agency in the federal government. And they have to follow uh, these rules that are set for them by uh, this federal statute called the Administrative Procedures Act. So anytime they enact a rule, the Administrative Procedures Act requires that the rule be published and it allows the public to comment on it. Here, the CDC enacted the mask mandate, and so because the CDC did not allow the public to comment during the 30-day comment period and then respond to the comments, instead they just issued the rule. Now, there's an exception to this public participation component, which is a good cause exception, and the court found that the good cause exception didn't apply here. And so they violated the process for enacting a rule. And then the other uh, part of the legal opinion says that um, the CDC violated something called the Public Health Services Act. So the CDC has some authority outside of rulemaking, outside of the Administrative Procedures Act to protect the public. So just to sum up, there were sort of two legal reasons One, that the CDC exceeded its power under the Public Health Services Act, and two, that the CDC violated the process that it's supposed to use in order to enact a rule. Hmm. And Rebecca, remind us, why did the CDC say the mask mandate was necessary in the first place? So the most important thing to know about uh, COVID, among the most important things, is that it's airborne. It's very airborne and it's very infectious. And so 
one of the easiest things that people can do to protect themselves and to protect others is to wear a mask, which reduces the amount of virus that's potentially coming out of you and also could um, reduce the amount of virus that's coming into you if somebody infected is nearby. And so it's really important that we have these measures that reduce risk in public spaces that people need to be in to go about their day. People need to take the bus to get to work. People need to take the train to commute. Um, people were traveling over the, um, the spring holidays with the assumption that this mask mandate would be in place and so it would be safe for their child who was under five to be on an airplane, their child who was under two who cannot wear a mask. Um, it would be safe to go and visit a relative who is immunocompromised and experiencing cancer treatment. So this mask mandate, it protects everybody and especially it protects people who are in communal spaces who are just trying to get places that they need to be. And Rebecca, the, the infection rate in San Diego, as you mentioned, remains relatively low, but that's not the case across the country and across the globe. Give us a sense of what's happening in terms of COVID infections around the world. Right. So right now we are kind of in a, a post-Omicron trough. Um, but we've seen this pattern play out a few times where there will be um, a new variant, um, there will be some amount of evolutionary pressure, so any variant that comes through is probably going to be a little bit better at overcoming um, your vaccine than the one before, which is why boosters are a good idea. Um, and so we saw this happen in the UK when mask mandates were lifted. Um, Omicron came through, there was a big surge. Um, in particular, their airlines found they couldn't staff flights because flight attendants didn't have to wear masks anymore. Um, we saw it take off in Denmark. We're starting to see an uptick in the UK or um, on the East Coast. And so things are kind of in a lull right now, but that's no reason to think that COVID is gone. It's not gone. We're enjoying a brief trough before the next thing happens. And the more that we can keep simple, easy protection measures in place, like wearing a mask around people who are immunocompromised, who are under five, or who just want to protect people, the longer we're going to keep that trough going so we can all live our day-to-day -day lives. And in a global society, what effect do you think lifting the mask mandate could have here if, say, 50% of air travelers choose not to wear masks? I think that's hard to predict, but, you know, like you said, we are very interconnected. Um, and the thing about um, air travel is, you know, within an airplane, once the plane is pressurized and in the air, there's actually pretty good air turnover is my understanding. Um, but when the plane is sitting in the tarmac, when you are in an airport, when you are mingling in an enclosed space with lots of people from all over the world, um, that's a time when viruses from all over the world can also mingle in the shared air. And I think it is really important to remember that this, of course, affects um, flights and it affects people who had planned their air travel around a mask mandate existing. But it also affects, like you said, affects um, Uber drivers and Lyft drivers. It affects bus drivers. It affects people who need to commute on public transportation. And it's one thing to say, okay, I'll choose not to fly. It's a bummer. I'm not going to go on vacation. But it's another thing to say, I don't feel safe commuting to work anymore, but I still have to feed my family. Well, and Joanna, that leads me to my next question, because in her ruling, Judge Mizell wrote, quote, wearing a mask cleans nothing. 
At most, it traps virus droplets, but it neither sanitizes the person wearing the mask nor sanitizes the conveyance, end quote. That's uh, what she said. So, Joanna, what do you take away from that language? The CDC argued that they acted with authority under the Public Health Services Act. And in the, under the Public Health Services Act, that's the, um, the act where they're allowed to quarantine somebody, you know, if they have Ebola. And there's a list of, um, uh, of things that they're allowed to do uh, to quarantine or to disinfect or to sanitize. And the word sanitize or sanitation is, is used in sort of the list of things that the um, CDC can do under the Public Health Services Act. And so clearly this isn't... Um, wearing a mask isn't, uh, one of the things was pest extermination. Like clearly it's not pest extermination. So sanitation was the only word under the public health services act that the CDC was arguably acting under. And so the judge was saying mask wearing isn't sanitation. Sanitation is cleaning something. If you look in the dictionary, what it means to sanitize something, you know, it means to, to, you know, wash something off or clean it. And so the CDC exceeded its authority or it didn't have authority under the Public Health Services Act because that's limited authority to pest extermination or sanitation. And uh, the mask mandate didn't fall under any of that. She does say later in the opinion that she's not challenging or she's willing to accept that masks reduce transmission. It's just that it's irrelevant to her ruling. Hmm. Uh, Rebecca, you know, from a scientific perspective, what does wearing a mask do in terms of protecting people from the spread of COVID-19 in public spaces, even if you're the only one wearing it and no one else is wearing one? You can kind of think of this um, Swiss cheese approach. That's an analogy that's been floating around for a while. So what a mask does, especially a well-fitting, high quality mask, like a KN95, an N95 mask, viruses mostly can't fit through the weave of a high quality mask. And so if you are wearing a mask and you, for example, are infected, but don't know it because you know, you got a vaccine, you don't have a lot of symptoms or it's allergy season. It prevents a lot of the virus from making it out of your breath into the wider space that you're in, which is why the sanitizing argument is a little bit silly. It literally prevents virus from floating around into the air. But if you are wearing a mask to protect yourself, what it also does is it kind of captures the virus before it can make it into the air that you're breathing through your nose and mouth. And of course, the mask has to be over your nose to also work. So it's not 100% effective. And Joanna, finally, you know, the Biden administration says it's reviewing Judge Mizell's ruling. What do you expect to happen next legally? They can appeal it to... um the Court of Appeals, which can enforce it or overturn it. And then the next step after that is they could, if they did not get a favorable ruling in the appeals court, they could go to the Supreme Court. So they could litigate it. Or the other thing that they could do is they could take this as a loss and say, okay, the judges said that we uh, didn't follow the Administrative Procedures Act. We will promulgate a rule. We will post it for 30 days and get public comment. Um, and then we will and then we will have a rule um, that follows the, the Administrative Procedures Act. All right. I've been speaking with Rebecca Felding Miller, an epidemiologist and UC San Diego professor, along with Joanna Sachs, a law professor with California Western School of Law. Thank you both for joining us today. 
Thank you. Thank you. I'm Beth Accomando, KPBS arts reporter and host of the Cinema Junkie podcast. I'm also a geeky gourmet who likes to bake food themed to the movies I watch, like chocolate blood to savor with Dracula, or an extra chewy Wookiee cookie to enjoy with Star Wars. I'm geeky about the things I love, and that makes me a public radio geek as well. I love being able to connect with audiences just like you through TV, radio, the web, and podcasts like the one you're listening to right now. So, are you a KPBS geek? If so, then I'm asking you to get in touch with your inner nerd and become a member of KPBS today. Just go to kpbs.org and click the blue Give Now button and make a donation. That's right. Let's geek out together about the things we love. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Hindman. Escondido's historic downtown is undergoing a makeover that could make it the next Little Italy-like scene. KPBS North County reporter Tanya Thorne gives us a look at the projects that are revitalizing Escondido's Grand Avenue. Dust, drilling, and construction workers have filled Grand Avenue in Escondido, where the Grand Tea Room is located. While tea and construction aren't the best combo, Luisa Magoon, the owner of the Tea Room, says she doesn't mind it. It's been a couple months, yeah, but uh, but it's it's okay. We're we're excited about the end result. (laughs) She's talking about the Grand Avenue Vision Project, a plan to improve Escondido's historic Grand Avenue, to drive more businesses and visitors into the city. Magoon says the improvements came from requests made to the city by business owners on Grand. We gave them ideas, you know, widening the sidewalks and putting more plants in and, and, you know, just the different ideas. And so we were super excited when we found out that they were actually listening and doing something about it. Jennifer Shunnick is the Deputy Director of Economic Development with the City of Escondido. She says changes to Grand Avenue will be implemented in phases. The Grand Avenue Vision Construction Project is really the first phase in revitalizing downtown Escondido. The benefits from this project are going to help draw people to downtown, help businesses expand their operations. She says outdoor dining helped many businesses survive the pandemic, and the wider sidewalks will make the patios permanent. So during the pandemic, we were able to issue temporary use permits for all of the restaurants that wanted to have an outdoor dining option. And that's something we definitely want to continue with the improvements that are happening on Grand Avenue. In addition to wider sidewalks, traffic on Grand will narrow down to one lane in each direction. Parking spaces will be added and string lighting will go up. Shunnick says changes will only be seen on the north side of Grand Avenue before construction comes to a pause right before the annual Cruising Grand Classic Car Meet resumes from May to September. Cruising Grand is a really important event in our downtown area, and we want to make sure that the event organizers feel comfortable with the state of Grand Avenue when that event starts. Then construction for the next phase is planned to start again in early 2023. Shunnick says a completion date for the full Grand Avenue vision plan is yet to be determined, 
because only about half of the $15 million project has been funded. But there's also another project playing a big part in Escondido's revitalization, right where the old Palomar Hospital used to stand. If you stand at the, at the Escondido sign at the end of Grand and you look down, historically you would see the large nine-story tower of the hospital. And now that that has been demolished, we wanted to create another landmark. Ninia Hammond is with Integral Communities. The developer is replacing Palomar Hospital with Palomar Heights. It's a mixed-use development, and the plans call for over 500 homes, some luxury and some what the developers call attainably priced. Our idea was to bring a product type to the market that was smaller in size and uh, lower in bedroom count to try to create a product that was attainably priced. What we describe that as is an entry-level buyer. 90 rental units will also be specifically for seniors 55 and over. Plus, it includes some retail and restaurants. And we tried to be careful about the amount of retail that we incorporated. Uh, we really didn't, we wanted it to be additive and not cannibalize the existing retail. Hammond says construction of the development will take between three to five years. And back at the Grand Tea Room, Luisa Magoon is looking forward to what's ahead. But we're hoping that with all the improvements that are going on and with Palomar Heights building all those apartments and condos, that it draws more, more businesses to want to move into downtown in addition to the customers. Tanya Thorne, KPBS News. Joining me is KPBS North County reporter Tanya Thorne. Tanya, welcome. Thank you, Maureen. What's prompted all this revitalization in Escondido? Businesses on Grand Avenue are actually the ones that initiated talks with the city about improvements they wanted to see on Grand. These requests were made back in 2015, so it goes to show how long these type of projects take to get in the conversation, get plans approved, and actually start any kind of work. And, you know, if you've ever been on Grand, you know it has a nostalgic Main Street downtown type of feel. There's still vacuum repair shops, uh, some tailors, a tea shop, businesses that you don't often see anymore. So the business owners were the ones that made their requests for improvements to drive more businesses and customers into the area. There are quite a few vacant storefronts, but, you know, that may not last after all these projects are done. How has the downtown business community weathered the pandemic? You know, the pandemic was tough on these businesses because they were already making requests for improvements to drive more customers to the area that a pandemic was the last thing anyone needed. But the advantage many of these businesses on Grand had was the accessibility for outdoor patios. These outdoor dining areas were what helped many businesses survive the lockdowns. And it was such a good trial that many restaurants now want to keep the outdoor patios permanently. So the widening of the sidewalks in these improvement projects can now accommodate that. Now, you say the Grand Avenue Vision Project could make Escondido's downtown a little like Little Italy in San Diego. How would the two be similar? You know, in San Diego, it's not common to find a main street like Grand Avenue or a neighborhood like Little Italy where restaurants and shops are pedestrian friendly and within walking distance to many homes. So the city council sees the potential for Grand Avenue. Like in Little Italy, Grand Avenue has tons of restaurant options, shops, 
string lighting will go up and, you know, parking might actually be easier to find on Grand Avenue than in Little Italy. Plus, Grand Avenue is already home to events like the Chocolate Festival and Cruising Grand. I want to talk to you about Cruising Grand because Cruising Grand Classic Carmine is going to make construction on Grand Avenue stop for this summer. So how big an event is that for Escondido? Cruising Grand is a huge event for Escondido. This will be the 22nd year for the Classic Carmi, and people from all over look forward to this event. The event returned last year, but because of the outdoor patios, things were a little different and cars couldn't cruise like years before. But this year, the cruising is back on on May 6th. And, you know, businesses on Grand really look forward to this event, too, because it always means more business. I remember last year, some of the restaurants were nervous because everyone was short-staffed and people were flooding Grand Avenue for the return of Cruising Grand because it was an outdoor event and COVID restrictions. Well, that's another place where the outdoor patios really help businesses. It gave them more room to see more visitors. Tell us more about the mixed-use housing development on the old Palomar Hospital site. How is that part of the new look Escondido was going for? Palomar Hospital in Escondido is no more, and it will be replaced with Palomar Heights. You know, this development will really add to that little Italy-like scenery because three to five years from now, when construction of the development is done, Grand Avenue will be that pedestrian-friendly neighborhood where nearby residents can walk to nearby establishments, not only on Grand, but within Palomar Heights, too. Developers have planned a rooftop bar, a sky lounge, restaurants, and cafes within the development. So the improvements on Grand, as well as the new development, will strike people's curiosity and drive them into the area. So there's no completion date set for the downtown Escondido redevelopment project because they don't have all the money yet. Is there a sense of confidence that the funding will fall into place? You know, it's hard to say, Maureen. I mean, about half of the project has been funded through a SANDAG grant, some city funds, and funds from the American Rescue Plan Act. Um, The city did tell me that they are already exploring ways of funding the remainder. But for now, phase two is funded and construction for that will start early next year. And, you know, we all know how long construction takes. So they have a couple of months to figure things out. So before you go, Tanya, I want to ask you about the deal that was reached that will allow the San Diego County Fair to have midway games and rides this year. A lawsuit put the fate of the fair in jeopardy this year. So how was this deal reached? Can you believe it? After getting the fair back last year, we almost lost it again this year. I spoke to the attorney representing Tally Amusements yesterday, the filers of the lawsuit, and he said that in all of his years in practice, he had never worked a weekend, let alone a holiday weekend because of Easter. But the settlement judge they got helped all of the parties involved reach a deal because we're weeks away from a huge event for San Diego County. And so the agreement is that multiple vendors will work together for this year's fair instead of only one provider. And this is the process that the fair used years prior. So like he said, things are really going back to the future for this year's fair. So we'll see a a full-scale county fair this year. Yes, the fair will go on and it opens on June 8th. And I think something people are really looking forward to are the concerts. That's something that was missing from last year's fair and the concerts are huge crowd callers. So the lineup has already been announced and I think with the return of concerts, There was just too much at stake to jeopardize such a huge money generator for the San Diego economy. 
As you said, the opening day is June 8th. I've been speaking with KPBS North County reporter Tanya Thorne. Tanya, thank you. Thank you. In an effort to combat a rise in deaths among San Diego's homeless population, a Chula Vista outreach group is establishing a street medicine team to serve the health needs of unhoused South Bay residents. The nonprofit Community Through Hope will soon be providing emergency relief services, wound care, hygiene products, food, and other items to residents of encampments in the region. And joining me now with more on this effort is Community Through Hope Program Director Bella Martinez. Bella, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. So what inspired you to take part in this effort and to help establish this program? I think for our entire agency, there was a vast importance of this program to kind of combat the criminalization that we've been seeing for our unsheltered clients, to kind of approach it in a different way, to rebuild trust and to approach things from a medical angle. It helps our clients have self-sufficiency to be able to take care of themselves and to take care of their neighbors. Can you break down what kind of services street medicine can offer? I mean, what does this look like on the person-to-person level? Our agency in itself is a gap services agency. So we help with um, kind of the things to navigate the system to self-sufficiency. So we do DMV vouchers, we do snack bags, hot meals, we do hygiene kits. um, And those are the things, dog and cat food, those are the things that we take out with us when we go on outreach to see our clients. Um, But what's even more exciting is that now we will be going out with a, um, a nurse from, a public health nurse from the County of San Diego. And later on, going out with more resident doctors from uh, Point Loma Nazarene University um, with us to be able to kind of add an extra element of care to help alleviate the rates of visits to the hospital through the ambulances. Um, But those are the things that we do. So we come out with hot meals, we come out with snack bags, come out with dog food, blankets, clothes. This program is going to be a partnership with the county's Department of Health and Human Services. What kind of resources are they providing to your team? So HSSA is having a public health nurse come out with us um, so we can address things in the moment with our clients. How has the need for street medicine increased in recent years? Um, it's, it's vital. I mean, about a few months ago, we actually lost one of our clients. Um, he suffered respiratory issues. He was 47. His name was Eric. And he was very loved by his encampment and his community. He had a wonderful dog named Hellboy, and he died on top of his oxygen tank. He, If his community had more information about how to take care of him and to take care of themselves, so his death could have been prevented. So the need is extraordinary for a program like this. What are the kinds of health challenges that members of the homeless population typically face? Um, wound issues, a lot of them are suffering from open festering wounds, which is something that we can address. Um, a lot of them suffer from, you know, drug and alcohol issues, which is we provide Narcan. A lot of them are suffering from like diabetes and things that can be addressed um, through a public health nurse. As someone who's homeless, you get a cut on your leg. What happens? Well, what happens is that if you don't have the proper tools to clean that wound, it gets infected. It gets worse. It leads to other issues like deep infection, which can put you in the hospital. And if people have access to be able to treat that immediately, then we get to lower the rates of trips to the hospital, which is a goal. So how accessible then is your program to people? 
We go out once a week. Um, we're here at our site at 465 C Street, uh, Monday to Friday from nine to four. Clients can walk in and get services directly, but we also go out every single week to check on our clients and meet them where they're at. In your experience, have you found that some people are hesitant to engage with outreach services? Especially in Chula Vista, um, there's been a broken trust between the unsheltered community and outreach workers, specifically through the hot team here in Chula Vista. There's been a, a broken trust between the police and who are out there supposed to be helping our unsheltered clients. So a lot of times people are hesitant. A lot of our programming in the first um, phase of South Bay Street Medicine was to rebuild that trust. Sometimes they see they see outreach workers and they don't want to talk to them because they think that they're going to get in trouble. But when they see us in our blue and green shirts, they know that we're here to help and not to hurt. And why do you think it's so important to separate how members of the homeless population view outreach apart from a a police response? I think it's vital that they have a separation between the two, because when you talk to a police officer, a lot of times you think, oh, if I share too much information, this is going to get me in trouble. This is going to lead to me getting my things taken away. This is going to lead to me having to leave where I'm at. Whereas with outreach, that's the, we're doing the opposite. We're there to help them continue to survive. I've been speaking with Bella Martinez, Program Manager for Community Through Hope in Chula Vista. Bella, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Have a wonderful day. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Heineman. Turner Classic Movies host Alicia Malone has a new book out called Girls on Film. She will be signing copies of the book this Sunday at the TCM Classic Film Festival in Hollywood. KPBS arts reporter Beth Accomando spoke to the author about her book and about this weekend's film festival. So Alicia, you have a new book, Girls on Film, Lessons from a Life of Watching Women in Movies. So this is not your typical, like, just a list of films or what to watch, but this is a very kind of personal journey through film. So explain how you wanted to structure this. Yeah, this is my first time being quite personal. My first book was about film history and and women throughout Hollywood history. My second book was about film analysis and favorite films directed by women. So I saw this as kind of a very loose trilogy where now I would try to mix personal memoir with film history and film analysis. And I started thinking about the idea for this book at the beginning of the pandemic when I was locked in my apartment and I noticed the types of films I would turn to for comfort. And a lot of them were movies I used to watch as a child. And I think that's something we all felt at that time, the the 
the need for nostalgia for something that felt very certain during an uncertain time. So I started to think more about what films have meant to me over my years and try to structure it in a way that could weave movies and personal memoir together. It's not, you know, an entire memoir about my life, but it's snapshots of my life and the films that I was inspired by and the women I was inspired by at that time. And one of the things you kind of ask in this book is why do we watch films? Why do each of us choose to watch movies and what kind? So what kind of an answer did you end up finding for yourself? Well, I was really interested in that. I always believed that I watched movies for answers. Being such an introverted child, being very shy and not wanting to ask my parents or any adult anything embarrassing (laughs) and everything about being a girl was embarrassing to me as a teenager. I always thought that I turned to movies to figure out life's big questions. And I'm sure it taught me a lot of things, you know, a lot of things about world history and and politics and and some lessons I've had to undo since finding out the real truth. But uh, what I discovered along the way was I actually don't watch movies for answers like I thought. I watch movies for questions, for more questions, because every film I watch, particularly classic film, which is often a time capsule of the time and place in which it was made, you know, that sends me into other questions and wanting to know more about the story behind the film, wanting to know more about what was happening in that country at that time, about society, and leading me into more research and having conversations with people. And that, I think, is what makes watching classic films so much fun to me is that there's always more to learn, there's always more to explore. So really, I I watch movies for questions and to have these conversations where I don't necessarily have all the answers, but I find such value in that. Now, in revisiting some of these films, were there some films that you fell in love with even more? And were there some films where you were kind of like, ooh, why did I like that one or something? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, one that uh, I I question is Mad Love (laughs) from 1995 starring Drew Barrymore. This is a film that not many people saw at the time, but for some reason, the time when I watched it, when I was like 14 years old, that it hit me so hard that I felt like I could relate to Drew Barrymore's character in a really strong way. So I knew all the words to the film. I listened to the soundtrack over and over. I cut my hair like Drew, and it was so aspirational to me as a a child. And watching that now, I can revert back to how I felt at that time, but I can't quite understand (laughs) as someone who now has watched a volume of films, you know, why that film in particular spoke to me. Uh, Sometimes you have those movies that you see the flaws, but it doesn't matter because you love them because you needed to see that film at that particular time in your life. And in revisiting these films, did like a particular film or a particular actress or a particular director kind of just strike you as like, yeah, this is really one that was pivotal for me or really made a mark on me or you find more significant than maybe you had originally thought? Yeah, I think Marilyn Monroe is an actress that I continue to revisit. She's someone that has beguiled me as a child in trying to figure out who she really was, who this enigma was, what that performance of womanhood actually means, and whether that was 
something, uh, you know, good for me to watch as a child or not. I revisited Gentlemen Fur Blondes and that's a film that when I watched it as a kid, I just fell in love with the bright colors and the, the fantasy of the film and the beautiful women and those costumes. But now as I've grown older and I've become, you know, a feminist and I can look at movies through that lens, I see something totally different. And I see someone who was performing a character that she created for herself, not only playing Lorelai Lee, but she was playing Marilyn Monroe. And I think this is true of her throughout the years. I mean, we keep revisiting her life and keep trying to figure her out because she was a mess of contradictions. She didn't really make sense. And she's one that I still find really fascinating and I haven't quite worked out, but I have a different relationship to her throughout my years as I've grown older. And in addition to being an author, you are also one of the TCM hosts, and the TCM Film Festival is coming up. And as a TCM host, you are also introducing a few films at the festival. Is there anyone that you are looking forward to in particular? Yes, I am really looking forward to speaking with Paula Abdul about Singing in the Rain, because A, I loved Paula Abdul as a child and Singing in the Rain, and B, I find it really fascinating that she has said in the past that watching Singing in the Rain as a child was an informative experience for her and led her to want to start dancing in the first place. So I'm really interested to learn more from her about A, what she feels about the movie, how it changed her life or her experience with the film, and B, also just uh, about the dancing from a choreographer. So I'm interested to talk to her about the dancing itself. And are there any films at the festival that you would like to highlight for people just in terms of your perspective on, you know, watching women in movies? Yeah, I mean, always the pre-code films are a lot of fun and they allowed a lot of freedom for women at that time. And pre-code movies are always really entertaining to watch with a crowd, live, they're fast, they're fun, they're risque. And uh, one that I would highlight is Queen Bee, which stars Joan Crawford. And it's Joan Crawford in her most Joan Crawford-esque role. She plays this uh, socialite who is after all the men and the men cannot help but uh, fall for her. I think technically it kind of came later than pre-code, but it's one that came to mind when I thought about that question because, uh, yeah, Joan Crawford, she's such a, a force on screen and a really interesting actress to look at from a feminist perspective. All right. Well, I want to thank you very much for talking about your book and about the TCM Film Festival. Thank you. I so appreciate you taking the time to talk to me about my book. Thank you. That was Beth Accomando speaking with Alicia Malone. Her book, Girls on Film, is currently available. The TCM Classic Film Festival runs this Thursday through Sunday in Hollywood. And look for Beth's Cinema Junkie podcast later this week with more from Alicia Malone and TCM programmer Scott McGee. KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego, offering the online Master of Data Science program, a journey through computation, data analysis, and real-world applications. Learn more about the online Master of Data Science program from UC San Diego at omds.ucsd.edu.